Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I read through one of the works of Philip K. Dick in roughly the order of chronological order of publication. So uh, today we'll be uh, looking at a really nice story on war paranoia, on civil defense and the Cold War and consumption and consumerism uh, in Foster Your Dead. Uh, Foster You Were Dead was originally published in Star Science Fiction Stories in 1955. And you can now find it in the third volume of the Collected Stories of Philip K. Dick, the volume called Second Variety and Other Classic Stories by, by Philip K. Dick. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll just jump right into the plot here. Um, it's, it's a nice, fun story. It, it's one of the famous ones, actually, by, by Philip Dick. I think it's been anthologized several times. And here's what Dick said about this. When it was anthologized in 1976, he wrote a little blurb about it. Um, and so it's a nice thing. If you go to the back of the Collected Stories volumes, you can find these blurbs for some of the stories. And these were the ones that were anthologized during his lifetime and that he, he took the time to write some commentary on. So here's what he said. Uh, one day I saw a newspaper headline reporting that the president suggested that if Americans had to buy their bomb shelters rather than being provided them by the government, they'd take better care of them. An idea that made me furious. Logically, each of us should own a submarine, a jet fighter, and so forth. Here I just wanted to show how cruel the authorities can be when it comes to human life and how they can think in terms of dollars and not people. So that's a really nice sentiment. And he's writing this before the decline of the welfare state. And I, and I think this lesson is true now i mean certainly well i i suppose i think it's it's in the nixon administration that like this effort at universal health care failed right nixon tried to get this or he played with the idea even played with the idea of a basic income for a while it's kind of a way to replace the the welfare state um but you know coming from from the post reagan and kind of the neoliberal era that we're in this idea that this burden of of life is 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 each individual's burden right so we have to get our own health care right there's no job guarantee anymore as there was in the 30s with the wpa or universal military near or universal potential with the draft military service which was in many ways a job program as well all this stuff is gone so we're all kind of on our own right and this is worsened by the fact that we're in this uberized economy and you know now they're talking about privatizing or reforming Social Security, right? Putting more of the burden for retirement on individuals. Uh, and certainly we're there with healthcare now. So it's it's here, it's about bomb shelters, but we can apply this to almost any kind of essential public service. And as we become more privatized in, in every area and the commons gets taken away, stories like Foster Your Dead will be very important for us to, to think about and come back to. Um, so the Foster... In the story is a, is a young man named Mike Foster, and he's suffering in school. He's making baskets. Um, so he's kind of a younger kid, and they're, they're just making baskets in school. 
And the teacher accuses him of keeping his knife in bad repair and then berates him for his, his poor skills. She reminds him that when the war comes, everyone will need to learn how to dig. And, and that's what he's not doing well in this making of this, this kind of basket making exercise they're doing. Now, some of the children told the teacher that Mike's parents was an anti-P. Anti-P means not a member of the Civil Defense Fund and therefore is not taking part in the arming and defense of the community. So now we have a, a child being berated and abused and mistreated by not just his classmates, but by his teacher over decisions made by the father. Right. So the father is not willing to go along with the. Uh, you know, what's expected of every good father. And therefore, the burden of this falls on the child more than it does the parents. And there we can think of examples of this in our own life, right, where kids might get tormented by classmates because of their parents' poverty or whatever other problems they might be having, right? Um, and there's all kinds of diversity in the American family. And there, there was in the 1950s, and there, there's even more now. And these, these attitudes might you know, be a burden on kids. And I, I wonder what the impact of, of kind of what, what happened to radical children, children of radicals in the 1950s, you know, during the anti-communist, the Red Scare. Or, you know, were parents sometimes who were kind of associated with the left back in the 30s and 40s identified and were the kids berated? It'd be an interesting research project to look into if any of that went on. So on his way home from school, Mike shuffles past the public bomb shelter and he worries once again that because it has an admission fee of 50 cents, he, he, he might not be able to enter. And so there's this anxiety, like he always has to have 50 cents in his pocket because if the bombs drop at any point, he's going to need to go to the bo public bomb shelter. And it's, it's got an admission fee. It's not free for, for entry. So it's privatized, essentially. Or at least there's a fee. It's, it's not free. So the difference between life and death is, is literally 50 cents admission. He passes a general electronics store. This is kind of a common Philip K. Dick location. Uh, certainly you see it a lot in like Dr. Blood Money, kind of the all-purpose electronics store. The Radio Shack, I guess. He loves to put these like repairmen there. But here he goes there to look at the newest private model of family bomb shelters. And so we got the 1972 model. So this is set about 20 years in the future of when the story was written. And it costs $20,000, but it has all the new features, all the new gadgets and gizmos and things that will keep the family safe during a war, if and when it comes. The salesman remind, remembers Mike, because Mike's kind of been window shopping for a while here, and he asks him to bring his father next time. He says, you know, you can't try it out, but if your father comes, you know, we can start to deal. The salesman reminds Mike to tell the father of the store's generous payment plans, you know, and the you know, the store credit that he can get. On his way home, Mike shuffles away from this, and on his way home, he recalls how his coach at school told him that he would be dead when the attack comes. That's where the name of the story comes from, Foster, you're dead. That he's not prepared to survive. So all this paranoia gets worked into the education system. The physical education is to physically prepare for war. Uh, they're built, making these baskets, learning to dig. All these things are about war survival and war preparation. So his father, Bob, when he comes home, asks him why he's late. And Mike explains that he was seeing the bomb shelters. And he again urges his father to get one. Um, and again, we, we see that all this pressure and all this anxiety is thrust on this poor boy. 
And the father doesn't have to take responsibility because he doesn't believe in the paranoia. And he's probably right not to believe in the paranoia. But by not conforming, the victim of that really is his son. Bob tries to tell his son that this is just a way to get people to buy things. It's just pure, straight-up consumerism. When they sold everyone cars and washing machines, they needed a new product, right? The market was saturated in those things, so they needed a new product that people would buy and spend a lot of money on. So it's the new consumer electronic, essentially. And In fact, the bomb shelters are sold at a consumer electronics store. Every year, they come out with new models and that there's planned obsolescence with these things. So it, it just becomes... Like a, it's, it's as expensive as a car, or more expensive than a car even, uh, given the inflation rate. And yet it's just this, another version, example of planned obsolescence. Mike's mother would, however, like to get the shelter because she's, she's not worried about war so much, but she fears how the neighbors look at her. So for her, it really is a type of conspicuous consumption. Later, Mike asks his father about the time he met the president. And so it seems that Bob had the chance to meet the president at some point, and maybe he's he's uh, fairly, you know, got a, some position that allowed him to do that. But he realized during this visit with the president that preparedness, this slogan, this is the slogan of the government, preparedness, is simply passing the burden of self-defense to individual families and communities. It's a form of privatization. It's taking the commons away. And this is an essential function of the state, isn't it? Like, even right wingers who want small government will say, "No, we got to raise military spending, right, or raise mil- police enforcement, and all these things." So, protection is kind of seen as the is the one function of the state that even uh, the anti-government right will accept as essential. But here, it's being privatized. The end result of this, he says, will be medieval-style villages and castles where basically every individual community or family or rich person will be able to create their own self-defense, their own self-defense network, leaving everyone else in, you know, behind. In the end, however, Bob finally does agree to buy the newest model, the bomb shelter, to appease his son and his wife. Mike is overjoyed to hear this, and he's filled with this feeling of security when the shelter is installed. This also changes his status at schools where all the kids are eager to see the new model and play there and and kind of experience it and know more about it. And Mike also mentions to his teacher that his father has changed his status to pro-civil defense, to pro-P, pro-preparedness. All right, that's what the P stands for. Now, Bob, Bob Foster, is horrified to learn that the Soviets have developed a new type of bullet. This new type of bullet makes the bomb shelters obsolete. It's not really explained why, but obviously it's another function of the planned obsolescence, right? Because you need, for these bomb shelters to become obsolete, you need the the Soviets to play along, right, and develop better weapons. So we're reminded of kind of a theme in the Zap gun, even though in the Zap gun, these weapons never actually made, they're just planned. But here, you know, you've got this new bullet that makes all the bomb shelters obsolete, so everyone's going to have to buy new ones. Ruth, though assures him that they, this is the wife, that they'll develop adapters that will, they'll be kind of added onto the shelters, which will provide automatic upgrades. Bob's confirmed that the bomb shelter is the ideal consumer good. It forces the people to buy new things and threatens them with death if they don't. Now that winter, due to financial troubles with the store, Bob had the bomb shelter removed because he couldn't make the payments or whatever. And horrified, Mike leaves the house. 
he finds a bomb shelter that was repossessed at the, st at the store and he hides inside there. One of the salespeople suggests giving the Fosters a deal that will allow them to afford it, but the other people at the store reject this. Mike Foster, Foster takes to wandering the streets and he, at the end of the story, passes the public bomb shelter. So Mike is totally paranoid at this point and he, he sees it as an essential life or death thing. And so he becomes obsessed with civil defense and self-protection and the bomb shelter. So we got a couple different interpretations here. And the, the wife sees it as a status symbol. The father sees it as a burden, burdensome consumer good that he has to buy to appease the people in the family. But it's Mike, the child, who takes it seriously as a life or death issue. And he's the one who's going to be psychologically scarred by this war paranoia. All right, so that's the story. Um, Foster Your Dead is one of Philip Dick's greatest comments on consumerism, uh, really of all the 1950 short stories. Um, and whenever I think about consumerism, I mean, I, I'll just come out with it. I, I'm on the pro-consumer side of things. And, and I think I mentioned this before, but maybe you're just joining us. I'll, I'll kind of give my explanation for this. When a worker, at the end of the day, gets his paycheck, this is just a fraction of what he produced during the day, right? That's where profit comes from, right? And you don't need to be a Marxist to understand this, right? The, the whole reason workers are exploited in workplaces is because they produce more value than what they they get back in their, their paycheck, right? So all workers are under consumers in a way, in the fact, in the sense that they consume less than what they produce. Now, when a worker goes on strike or negotiates or, you know, threatens a strike or whatever, forms a union, does whatever they do to try to get their wages higher, what they are essentially doing is asking for more consumption, right? Because, yeah, they get more money, but money means more consumption at the end of the day, right? Or maybe so they can save, but that's just delayed consumption for, for our future time. So when workers ask for more money, they're asking for a bigger chunk of what they produce back in the form of their paycheck. And ultimately, that's about consumer. So at this basic sense, I'm a pro-consumer. And I think people, if anything, people should consume more. And one of the great problems we have in our economy is people can't produce or can't consume all they produce. Right? And this creates this instability in, in capitalism. Now, what to... Now, why is Dick? Here's the question. Why is Dick anti-consumerism? Well, he sees it as banal. He sees it as environmentally wasteful and destructive. And certainly we'll see auto fact in a couple weeks that, well, maybe three, four weeks that, that explores this idea. He sees it as a form of mind control, as we see in um, sales pitch. Um, he sees it as a distraction. And all that is true, I guess. Um, and I think there are, there are ways we can talk about consumerism that doesn't necessarily empower the corporations to, to dictate our, our mental realm. But sometimes he, he really has a bee in his bonnet sometimes about these home consumer electronics. And certainly the 1950s were a period of time in which consumer electronics and, and machines and things were, were increasing. You started having washing machines and dishwashers and microwaves and televisions, all these things. And all these were major expenses at the time. So I understand where he's coming from with this anxiety over the newest thing, the newest consumer electronic. But 
things like the washing machine really saved a lot of labor. The washing machine was one of the greatest labor-saving technologies. Only someone who never had to wash clothes by hand could be so anti-consumerist as, as Philip Dick can be. Now, certainly there's a, a critique to be made about humanism, but at the same time, there's an aspect of humanism that comes from the alleviation of labor. We're more human if we're freed from labor. I, I, in this sense, I, I don't agree with some of the maybe Marxist ideas that like we're most human when we're productive and creative. You know, if, if we're talking about making furniture in our workshop or making our own clothes or whatever, yeah, I think there is a humanism in that. But in industrial productivity, there isn't. And how do we free ourselves from that? Well, we free ourselves from that with technology and automation and many of the things that Dick levels critiques against. So he fails to see technology as a way of allowing us to be more free and to free us from labor. Now, he's right that there's a lot of useless consumption, perhaps. And, and certainly the bomb shelter in this story is an example of a useless consumption, uh, or at least not useful beyond the image it presents. Now, the moral center of the story, though, is is really the mental trauma that Mike Foster fees, feels and faces. And I, I think here we got to give Dick a lot of credit for really richly exploring this this aspect of the of his his psychology because he of all the characters it's mike who's a believer that war is coming and is terrified he, he walks around with 50 cents in his pocket because he wants to always be able to be close to the bomb shelter he worries for his family's future he faces bullying and trauma in school from his teachers from the administration from the other kids now, all of this comes from the education system, his peers, and the media environment that pimps this idea that a massive war will come just around the corner. And if you're not prepared, you're going to die. That, I mean, the pro-P movement is essentially a consumerist movement, and it's a big, massive form of bullying. When some of the adults see beyond this, like his father, you know, it, it doesn't get us very far, right? Uh, Bob Foster knows it's a game. His wife thinks it's a game as well, but wants the bomb shelter to keep up with their peers so they're more cynical about it but you know it's kind of like the person who buys the fancy car they know the car doesn't necessarily work better is more fuel efficient or gives you a much better life but they know it's going to impress the 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 neighbors it's mike here as a child who really suffers the full psychological burden of this paranoid sick culture right he actually has a near psychological breakdown at the end of the story he has to have to break into a store to feel secure. He abandons his family, which he feels can no longer provide him security. So the, the end result of, cons of this consumer culture here is that a child is broken up from his family. He no longer trusts his family on this basic element of security. And it's all because of the, what he's been told. Now, after Mike Foster's nervous breakdown, we have a struggle between the private and the commons. The commons here are symbolized by the private bomb shelter. Now, there's a modest fee. Um, it undermines it as a true commons, but it is the remnant of a time when security was a concern of the government. Now, Dick would have remembered FDR's claims that one of the goals of winning this war, World War II, was to achieve freedom from fear. There were the four fears, or the four freedoms, sorry, the four freedoms that was the cornerstone of, of Roosevelt's vision of, of kind of post-war freedom. It was freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and those are kind of in the Constitution already. But he added to this freedom from want, 
in freedom from fear, right? And that, that fear is not just a fear of like the Nazis and war. It was, it was, remember his first inaugural address was about the Great Depression. And he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. So freedom from want and freedom from fear were, were attached in the same way freedom of religion and freedom of speech were, I think. But at that time, the, that freeing people from want and fear was a concern of the government. And it was a duty of the government. It was part of the commons. Dick imagined mass consumerism as an end to the spirit of the commons. But I think he's also been proven correct about this. Bob Foster imagines the future of the world will be medieval communities. Lacking any communal aspects, lacking any commons. Now, now here's a bit, in this sense, he's a little bit wrong. Because, of course, the medieval Middle Ages had a commons. And that's where our, some of our language and ideas of the commons come from the Middle Ages. But the idea is of instead of having modern nation states that provide the needs for everyone, we're going to have, you know, pe you know, the people in the castles and the people outside the castles. And the people with the castles will have the money. They'll be able to provide defense for themselves. They'll provide security. Everyone else is kind of on their own. Bob seems to be confused here, right? Because actually the medieval manor was this idea of the commons, right? This idea that there was an exchange. In exchange for protection, you, you give your, your crop to the feudal lord. But nevertheless, this idea that we're kind of entering into an age of feudalism where the nation state breaks down and everything becomes privatized is, I think, interesting. The nation state, which has this goal of promoting privatization and capitalism, is going to move us towards situations that may seem more like medieval towns. The community that Mike Foster is growing up in here does have some community, communitarian aspects. It has the civil defense organizations, but defense here is still primarily privatized. So it's kind of a late capitalist neoliberal feudalism rather than a true model of the, of the medieval world. So I think we might see feudalism in the future, but I think it will miss out on a lot of the aspects of, of like the commons that you had in, in true medieval feudalism. Um, but I think the big issue here that I think the big core critique here is, is the impact of the Cold War on children. What did it do to children's psychology, or to the boomers generation, to be constantly told that war is coming and you may not make it, you may not survive, right? The, the, what, did, what was it like to live under the gun? And what was the psychological impact of that? And are we still bearing some burden, some costs of that psychological warfare? And then to Dick here is really original, I think, in tying together consumerism with this critique of kind of the Cold War paranoia culture. And he does it really well here. Um, so anyways, that, that does it for foster you're dead um a good story really an important one to to read um but thank you so much for listening to this podcast if you have any comments about this story if you have any responses if, if you have your own experiences with this story please share them below you can write me also at 100 pagescast at gmail.com and i love to i love to get your emails and I, i'll try to respond to as many of them as i can on air so uh, with that, I'll go. Uh, again, thank you so much for, for listening. I'll be back shortly with another story by Philip K. Dick. Come my tired thoughts once home. That leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving dies. Till